Well, this morning, we are beginning a new sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, and we're going to be here for like four or five months. So uh, buckle up, we're going to go slowly and hopefully soak it in deeply. I'm calling this series Living in Sync with the Kingdom of God because the Sermon on the Mount describes what it looks like when human life is really in sync with the kingdom of God. And it's something that um, I think we all long for. <laughs> we all, we all want to be in sync with God's kingdom in this time. And, and so we're going to look at the sermon and let Jesus tell us what that may look like for us. As you know, in the book of Matthew, Jesus is often compared in the early chapters to Moses. He's kind of like a new Moses. And then throughout the Gospel of Matthew, you actually get five major sermons of Jesus. So you get the Sermon on the Mount, then you get Matthew chapter 10, then 13, then kind of 19, and then you get 24 and 25. And so Jesus is seen as this new Moses who has five sermons to match the five books of the Pentateuch that Moses himself was seen to write. So we have a new Moses who writes a new Pentateuch for the people of God. And the Sermon on the Mount is the first of those sermons. It's kind of like the genesis of the Old of the New Testament, in a sense. Now, this sermon is Jesus' most famous, but it's, one could argue, also the least understood and the hardest to obey and live out in many respects. So the question arises, why the Sermon on the Mount, and why have I chosen to do this right now <laughs> at this particular time? Uh, honestly, I chose to do this sermon uh, just knowing that this year was going to be an election year. I figured leading up to the election, it would be really good for us as Christians to have our hearts and minds and imaginations immersed in what Jesus thinks the kingdom of God is all about. But now that you add to that uh, the fact that we have a pandemic and the fact that there are plenty of protests, protests of various kinds still going on, I think it is even more incumbent upon us to listen again to the voice of Jesus and let him tell us what we as a people are to be on about. And so I think we're looking at the sermon basically to help us stay focused on Jesus and his kingdom in a season where it is really hard to do so and really easy to be distracted by all manner of other things. Our, our Bishop Todd wrote a, um, a kind of little 10-page booklet to all the clergy under his care this last week. And he asked this question, how should we think about the issues of our day? How should we think about the issues of our day? There's so many of them. And, and he said this, beautifully put, simply put, put Jesus at the center of the picture, put Jesus' kingdom at the center of the picture, and then work out from there. And he goes on, we don't start thinking and responding to the issues of the day via the frame of anything else, political parties, political theories, theological action groups, or even extra biblical constructs, uh, theological schemes. He said, when we try to do that, we try to fit Jesus into the and the kingdom into other frameworks, it automatically distorts and pollutes and marginalizes Jesus every single time. And then he goes on to say, in Jesus, the world finds its true sense of self, its ultimate orientation, and its final telos. Jesus gives us the clue to what God is doing in the world in the midst of the pandemic and in the midst of protest. End quote. 
And so I think that was just bang on. So that's basically why I want to look at the Sermon on the Mount, just because I think it's going to help us just stay focused on Jesus and his kingdom, keep that central, and then let everything else work out from there. And the second thing is I think the Sermon on the Mount is going to remind us that to be followers of Jesus, to really follow Jesus, is actually going to mean that we need to be quite distinctive and quite different from the world and culture around us. To be followers of Jesus is a call to be different. In other words, we are not to take our clue on how to live life from the surrounding world, to share its divisions, to to echo its polarities, to adopt its priorities. We are to take our clue from Jesus, to walk at his pace, to walk his path in his way. And so I think what the sermon does for us is it reminds us that to be a follower of Jesus is means we're not just going to be for this particular movement. We're not going to be for this particular movement. We're actually going to say to the world, there is a third way. There is a kingdom of God way. And that cannot be fit into worldly categories or, or political parties. It is something that Jesus has to lead us into. And so we're going to listen to Jesus and ask, how do you want to lead us into this, Jesus, through the Sermon on the Mount? So that's why I am taking us into the Sermon on the Mount. I'm hoping we'll be a people that are modeled after the kingdom of heaven rather than any reaction to the cultural moment, and that we will be a people that are defined more about what Jesus wants us to be for than by necessarily what we want to be against. So that's that's where we're at. Now, as we enter into the Sermon on the Mount, I'm doing a bit of an extended introduction here because we're going to be there for a while, so I think it's important. I think it's really important that we always keep Jesus' words in the sermon in context. We always receive them and we always hear them and we always seek to live them in context. Now, when you look at Matthew chapter 4, there are a number of things that happen before Jesus preaches this Sermon on the Mount that are very important. Matthew 4, 17, Jesus preaches his first sermon and he says, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And so he talks about the presence of the kingdom. Then in verses 18 to 22, he goes on and he calls the first disciples. He said, come follow me and I will make you fishers of people. And then right on the heels of that, Jesus goes around all of Galilee, teaching and preaching and healing people of many illnesses and diseases. So before the Sermon on the Mount, the context that we get is presence of the kingdom, call to discipleship, and Jesus healing touch and healing grace. And then he speaks the Sermon on the Mount. Now, why is this important? Because the Sermon on the Mount is a really challenging word. (laughs) I mean, if if you read through the Sermon on the Mount for three seconds, you say, who is sufficient for these things? And so if we take the Sermon on the Mount out of the context of Jesus' presence to his kingdom, of his healing touch, of his gracious call to discipleship, then his words can easily become either frustrating idealism that we we feel like we can never live up to, or oppressive moralism that makes us want to run away from it because we realize we always fall short. If we take the sermon out of that context that Jesus places it in, then we'll either end up with some sort of foolish optimism that that is way too hopeful about our ability to perfectly live what Jesus calls us into, or we'll end up in some sort of hopeless despair that thinks, well, why even try? And so it's really important that we keep Jesus' words in context. And in context, what they are intended to do is give us a picture of what human life and human community looks like when it comes under the gracious and healing rule of God. 
when the kingdom of God breaks into somebody's life, I think this is what Jesus is saying in the sermon, in the life of an individual or a community or a nation, something happens, like something always happens. Heaven invades earth, the future crashes into the present, life and light pervades the darkness, and a new humanity is, is birthed into the world. Humanity is kingdomized and gospelized. Character is transformed. Priorities are changed. Hearts are searched and sanctified. Uh, relationships are protected and purified. And people are made different when the kingdom of God breaks into their lives. And I think what we see in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus saying, when this kingdom breaks in, this is what it's going to look like. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the peacemakers. See, the Sermon on the Mount is full of challenge, but we need to, I think, again and again, realize that Jesus speaks it in a context of healing and liberating and empowering grace. And I think we see this nowhere more clearly than in the opening statement of the sermon itself. I mean, you might expect that if Jesus announces the presence of the kingdom, he is the king finally coming to rule and reign over this kind of dark and chaotic world. You might expect that the opening line of his kingdom manifesto would bear all the confidence of royal power and victory. He would start on some major triumphant note. But notice how Jesus begins. He begins with poverty. This kingdom is an upside down kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, says Jesus, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I love the way that Frederick Dale Bruner put it in his commentary on Matthew. He said, the Sermon on the Mount is spiritually speaking, actually a sermon from the valley. It starts low. It starts with those who feel very like, unlike they're on the mountaintops. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I'm so thankful that Jesus begins there, that <laughs> he starts low, that he starts right where I'm at. So what, what specifically is Jesus talking about when he starts with this poverty? Why is poverty a quality of a people who have been transformed by the kingdom of God? Well, there's two different words in Greek for poverty. There's uh, penes and there's petokos. Uh, penes and petokos. Penes, on the for one hand, refers to a person who has to live in order to survive. They have to work in order to live. They don't need to beg. Um, they don't need help or charity, but they're not rich enough to just subsist on their savings. They're, they're not destitute, but they need to work for their daily wages. So that's, that's kind of penes, that understanding of poverty. But petokos refers to a person who is utterly destitute and who is utterly dependent on the support of others for survival. So it's a person that, that does not have work, does not have the ability to earn their own wages, and has nothing at all. So they are forced to beg and be dependent on the charity of another. So you have penes and you have patokos. And Jesus uses the second of these two words, the more extreme form of destitution here in this point. So he's literally saying, blessed are the utterly destitute and the totally bankrupt in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, this raises a question for us, then what is the in spirit language always all about? Those of you that have know your gospels know that Matthew 
records Jesus' beatitude slightly differently. He drops out the in spirit part. So he says, blessed are the poor, full stop, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Which raises the question, like, does, does Luke socialize Matthew? Or does Matthew spiritualize Luke? Um, are they getting at the same thing? See, I think they are getting at the same thing. But I think what's happening is that Matthew is drawing out and making explicit something that Luke implicitly, implicitly assumes. And in order to understand this, we have to know that in the Old Testament, poverty, the idea of being poor, is viewed not simply as a socioeconomic reality, although that is definitely an important part of the picture, but it's also viewed in the Old Testament as a spiritual reality. The poor in the Old Testament are not simply those that don't have enough and are poverty-stricken, but they are those that because they don't have enough, because they are needy and downtrodden and often oppressed, some of them have had to learn to put their faith and hope in God because they had no other option. In other words, their socioeconomic situation has put them sometimes in touch with a deep fundamental spiritual reality of human life. And that's that we are dependent on God. That's why in the Old Testament, you never hear the Bible celebrating economic poverty in and of itself as a good thing. And I don't think that's what Jesus is doing here. Rather, they celebrate the fact that in poverty, God can use that to bring about a humility and a dependence and a God-orientedness in a person's life. And so, for example, in Proverbs 16, you get, it is better to be lowly in spirit with the poor than to divide, to divide the spoil with the proud. In other words, it's better in the Old Testament to be humble and poor than it is to be rich and proud. And so Jesus is commending this humble quality, I think, when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who recognize their neediness and their helplessness and their utter dependence on God and therefore put their whole trust in him. Now, it is true that every human being post-fall is spiritually bankrupt, needs God, dependent on God in every way for life. But I think Jesus is talking about something more specific here, because he's saying that this spiritual poverty is a quality of those who have heard and received and are obeying the gospel in particular. And so what is it that Jesus is talking about? I think he's not just blessing that we're in a place of spiritual bankruptcy and poverty. He is saying he is blessing those who see that, who recognize it, who know that about themselves, and then who humbly admit it and therefore cast themselves at the feet of Jesus. I think here of the AA program, the AA 12-step recovery program. What is the first of the 12 steps? The first one that you have to get in order for any other of the 12 steps to happen. It's we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. Like in a sense, that's the genius of AA. It puts people in community and it says you start from this place of absolute humility. You admit that you are powerless. And that is the beginning of the 12 steps of the road to recovery. 
And I think that's what Jesus is on about here. Right at the beginning of his massive kingdom manifesto, he is saying to the church of Jesus Christ, I want you to know that being the church does not mean getting it all right and having all the answers and standing in judgment over all those who seem like they get it wrong. Being the church of Jesus Christ, being those who are gospelized, who have been gripped by the kingdom of God, means you know that you are spiritually bankrupt and you admit it. You know that you don't have what it takes to live the gospel life and you recognize it. You know that you're poor. Nothing in my hand I bring, says the hymn. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, I look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And the surprising thing right at the beginning of the sermon is that Jesus says to people who are in that place of feeling their own poverty, right on, congratulations, blessed. It is yours that is the kingdom of God. It is yours. Now, we don't know all the reasons why Jesus decided to begin his kingdom manifesto this way. But I think, as I've been reflecting on it this week, there are at least three reasons why I think it would be important for us to consider this starting point very seriously. And the first is that it undercuts all forms of self-righteousness. It undercuts all forms of self-righteousness. Jesus here takes away any sense, as I just said, that being a part of the kingdom of God means we have to have all the answers and we have to have it all together. And it takes away any sense that it is like our job as the people of God to judge the world and to make sure that the kingdom of God is realized in the ways that we want it to be realized and in the timing that we want in the world. And it takes away any sense that we as the people of God need to be defensive in relation to somehow trying to prove that we're right or acquitting ourselves of, of wrong. You see, in the midst of all the conversations that have unfolded and the variety of responses to pandemic and protests and all these different things, it seems to me that our world is in deep need of a big dose of humility. <laughs> And that the church needs a big dose of humility. You see, self-righteousness fuels defensiveness and it fuels polemics and it fuels aggression. And Jesus is saying to us, no, you are my kingdom people. I want you to be marked by the quality of humility. I think this is going to be so key to so many of the conversations that we have going forward together. Because, like, think about having conversations about race, for example. Like, how can we possibly enter into conversations with one another about race if we are not deeply aware of our own inner poverty? If we are not deeply humble in the way that we approach one another and therefore willing to listen to one another with just such gentleness and such compassion and such understanding, See, I think we need this humility of spirit because it is the only thing that will create a safe space for conversation and a fruitful space for growth for us in the kingdom of God in the days ahead. 
blessed are the pure in spirit, the poor in spirit, says Jesus. And in that statement, he undercuts every form of self-righteousness. And also in that statement, secondly, he encourages us to keep pressing on when it is hard. No one ever said that following Jesus was going to be easy, (laughs) especially in this time period. And Jesus didn't say it was going to be easy. He said it was going to be like this daily act of laying down one's life and one's rights and one's own agendas. And as you read through the Sermon on the Mount, and I actually would encourage you this week to to read through the Sermon on the Mount in one setting. It takes about 18 minutes or 20 minutes, not long. You realize that Jesus' words are very challenging and very convicting, like hard-hitting at some point. I mean, when I hear Jesus say, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, I'm like, whoa. When I hear Jesus say everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart, whoa. When I hear Jesus say, love your enemies, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you, whoa. When I hear Jesus say, do not be anxious about your life, you don't need to. I find myself challenged by those things. Like I really long to experience the realities of which which Jesus is speaking. I want to live into these things. But I also have this sense of like, how, how am I sufficient to do these things? Who is sufficient to do these things? And I think it's that in that place that Jesus wants to constantly come back to the beginning of the sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I think as we read through the sermon, we could read the first verse of the sermon before and after every other verse of the sermon, and that would give us the proper context in which to understand what Jesus is talking about and to encourage us to keep pressing in when it's really hard. And finally, I think this first verse of the sermon fosters in us a spirit of gentleness and compassion and honesty. Uh, Tim Keller, the reformed kind of Presbyterian pastor in New York, once said that the gospel says to us that on the one hand, we're more sinful and flawed than we ever could have dared to believe. But on the other hand, we're more loved and accepted than we could have ever dared to hope. And I think that's what the first beatitude is saying to us. You're more sinful and flawed than you could have dared to believe. Poor in spirit. But you are more loved and accepted than you could have dared to hope. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. As we are aware of that gospel, aware of our own inner poverty, and yet aware of the great depths of God's inner love, then I think it will cultivate in us a a more gracious attitude towards others when we come up against their own inner poverty and their brokenness and their sinfulness. More understanding of people's pain more compassion towards other people's needs, more gentleness with other people's misdeeds and misgivings. It's interesting to me that at the end of the gospel of Matthew and Matthew chapter 25, Jesus has this great judgment scene. And he says to some people uh, on his right hand, welcome to the kingdom of heaven. Well done, good and faithful servants for When I was naked, you gave me something to wear. When I was hungry, you gave something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And his kind of followers say to him, well, well, like, when did we do this, Lord? And he said, whenever you did it to the least of these, your brothers and sisters, you did this as if it was to me. 
And so one of the astonishing things that we get at the end of the Gospel of Matthew is that Jesus himself identifies with those in their poverty. Jesus himself identifies with his people who are poor in spirit. He is very present to them. And that is why theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so when we kind of admit our poverty of spirit, we adopt a posture of humility before ourselves and God and others. It is not something that is counter to the triumph of God's kingdom. It is the very doorway to everything that God desires for his people. So friends, I'm excited to go to the sermon with you. And this is a good place for us to begin. So I speak these things to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.